And this is the Imperfect Buddha Podcast, exploring contemporary Buddhism at the edge and at play in the great feast of knowledge. Sponsored by O'Connell Coaching. Visit imperfectbuddha.com coaching if you're interested in exploring the themes that emerge in this podcast and engaging with the challenges of a contemporary spiritual practice. Our guest today is Jane Affleck, a Canada-based artist and writer who also teaches at the University of Prince Edward Island. More importantly, Jane is a fan of the idols and sees art and practice and joy as an act of resistance. She's written a great deal of fiction and non-fiction for various publications in Canada, although the piece that I was attracted to was a bit of writing she did for the Sideview magazine. Now, you may remember a past guest of ours, Adam Roberts, the founder of the Sideview magazine, coming on and having a very wide-ranging and creative conversation with us. And he tends to attract creative, wide-ranging thinkers to that publication. The piece we talk about quite a bit in our conversation today is called Meditative Awareness and the Symbiotic Real. That's quite a title for a text, but don't panic. This episode is part of our practice series, and we spend quite a bit of the conversation talking about just that. Jane shares my own interest in the relationship between contemplation and the environment, and the idea of meditation as doing and not just being. For those of you interested in creativity and nature, this is certainly a conversation worth giving up some of your time to engage in. Welcome to the podcast, Jane. Thank you for coming on. Are you ready to answer a few practice questions and talk about your practice life? Absolutely, yes. Thank you so much for inviting me. Great, great. Good. So look, um, listeners should know that I came across your work primarily through the fantastic journal called The Side View, which uh, I've recommended a few times, but I'll just take the occasion to recommend again to the thinking practitioner out there who follows the podcast. So why don't we dive into what inspired you to write that? Several things, I, I guess you could say, inspired me to to write it. I guess I'll sort of do it chronologically. When I came back to this place where I'm living now, which is Prince Edward Island, um, as it's more commonly known, or Epigwit as it's known in Mi'kmaq, which is the local indigenous community here, um, I came back here in the summer 2018 just about to finish up my PhD dissertation. And one element of my research for that involved actually looking at um, some of the philosophies of a couple of different um, indigenous peoples on what is now called North America, uh, the Mi'kmaq here locally in the East Coast, and then also um, certain groups of Anishinaabeg people in what is now Ontario. And so that got me thinking really questioning myself as a person, as a human, and what my relationship is to my surroundings and to land. And um, so from that, then I came back here, uh, finishing those up the, that writing and thinking about it in more depth. Um, and I came back here because this is a place I had spent a lot of time as a child. And so it was maybe 
I guess, as close as I would call to home or a sense of home in the land um, of anywhere else that I've ever been. So I thought, okay, I'm going to come back and just see what these Indigenous teachings, this knowledge that I have sort of learned is going to, what's that going to do for me as a person returning to a place that I already have a close relationship with? You know, how am I going to sort of evolve that relationship? So from there, um, I guess I also read Timothy Morton's work, Humankind, which sort of, I think, sees some similar concepts in, from a slightly different perspective, the, the white Western perspective. Um, and also just being out in the land is, is what inspired me, or more to be more precise, being in the intertidal zone of, of you know, this island, this uh, small province, mm-hmm. and personal, direct experience of of this place i think is is what inspired me to write as well you pick up on a theme that i'd like to explore a little bit further there are several themes within the piece but you know within your description now you're really talking about an issue that i've been thinking about on and off over the years and haven't really got that far with in a sense because it's such an open concept but it's the relationship between geography and the experience of being in the world which is so Mm -hmm. given in a sense that it's usually discounted, there's still this sense of of wonderment and of um, the sacred that often gets infused into territory. And I think within the practicing life, it's often an area that's kind of left to its own devices in a sense. You might have somebody who's a poet or somebody that goes for walks or an artist, someone like yourself, that draws the environment they're situated in. I think we often underestimate the degree to which geography forms our entire sense of what practice is and isn't and what it should be. Now, perhaps we can talk about that a little bit already. How does your own relationship to geography form your own sense of the practicing life? Can you speak to that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I've probably, since coming back in June of 2018, I've probably walked in the intertidal zone of one stretch of the coast or another about 450 times, I'm, I'm guessing. Um, in the span of about a year and a half. So, you know, maybe I could have gone more. Sometimes the weather here isn't conducive to doing that. But I think that in itself, that sort of repetition, that sort of almost daily practice of going for a walk um, in a specific place where you might almost want to stop yourself from doing it because you're anticipating boredom, um, but you're making yourself do it anyway, (laughs) is, is perhaps some kind of practice, right? You're overcoming your some element of your ego that's saying, oh, not today, you know, and and you're making yourself go out and do this thing. And in fact, once you're out there, it is never boring. There's always something new to see. There's always some new life form to observe or to some new shift in the landscape to witness and to sort of marvel over. And I think, you know, maybe going back to what you were just saying about taking something as given, you know, we maybe take for granted our environments because we think they're not going to change. And maybe that's particularly if you're living in an urban place and and the built environment doesn't really change unless there's a major construction project going on. But I think we take for granted that around us, the more than human world is constantly changing. And, you know, sometimes that has to do, unfortunately, with the effects of climate change. Mm. And that is something I witness here. Um, 
as I'm out walking, I see the erosion of the cliffs and so on and so forth. And it, it just reminds me of how connected we really are to place. Yeah. So I feel I'm getting attracted. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. I mean, the, these themes are very rich. So I think there's the tendency to, to start in one place and find yourself, you know, meandering off down a new pathway yes. that, you know, uh, is enticing. But um, the issue of boredom and expectation and the normalcy of things and also our resistance to that is also an interesting aspect of practice. There's almost this sense as well sometimes that being in connection with nature is almost a cliche, so it loses the capacity to surprise us. And I think that in itself is also a practice, right? Living in a specific location, walking the land as many times as you have, recognizing when that boredom comes up or that almost sense of resistance to, oh, that's, you know, let's not just go down that pathway yet again. The practicing life has this characteristic to it of expectations and our resistance to certain kinds of experience. And I think nature, in many ways, nature as nature, nature as geography, as the environment that we live in and we imagine it to be, is itself one of the greatest practice fields out there. And I think it's something that's often underplayed or underappreciated within Buddhism, for example. And I wonder what your own thoughts are about that. How do you see the complexity of nature and Buddhism and meditation kind of playing together or not, so to speak? I probably should have said this earlier at the beginning. Um, I'm not a Buddhist per se. I don't know that I can speak on any sort of formal official level to those things, but I do see parallels between some of the other notions of practice and other sort of traditions of engaging with nature, for example, mm -hmm. like the indigenous cultures that I've become familiar with. Well, that's not a problem, so, Jane. You know, we don't mind imposters here at all. It's, uh, we've got room <laughs> for everybody. <laughs> sure. And now at this point, I'm going to need you to remind me what the question was. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, it was one of these sort of, um, you know, creative questions that come about from, from early stage conversation. But the question was basically this. There are several ideas within your piece that talk about the relationship with nature. And although you, you know, you've said that you're not officially a Buddhist, which of course is fine for us at least, there's a lot of, in a sense, Buddhist content within there. And you talk about compassion, you talk about, I mean, you even offer up a meditation, which was, you know, a very interesting exploration as well, of kind of putting yourself in the shoes of sea life. So my right. question was this, in a sense, uh, do you see a tendency within meditation culture more broadly beyond, let's say, Buddhism? that tends to kind of disregard or not appreciate the degree okay. to which the natural environment and geography plays a role in the formation of, of ourselves and of our ideas of practice. Mm -hmm. Okay, yes. <laughs> Thanks for that. Um, so I guess one of the things that comes to mind when you say that is maybe the sort of more superficial version of mindfulness that has um, kind of caught on in popular culture. Um, I think maybe in some ways that represents something that's useful for people, but maybe isn't necessarily an accurate um, or comprehensive version of Buddhism, let's say. Um, and so within that, then maybe there's a tendency for some people to, to latch on to concepts of mindfulness insofar as they pertain to themselves and, and that it's a way for you to, potentially focus more on yourself than on your surroundings, for example. But I don't, as I understand it anyway, in, 
and a broader, more comprehensive view of traditional Buddhism, I don't think that's ultimately um, how you might interpret notions of mindfulness or what meditation can do for you or, or how you might approach meditation. I think that mindfulness can indeed help you to become more aware of your surroundings. You know, I think you can maybe start with yourself, but pushing outwards as I sort of hopefully help people with that article to think about other living beings in your surroundings um, is maybe not necessarily the goal as written <laughs> in any official sense. But I think, you know, if we think even about notions of karma and, and how I think from understanding the first of the Eightfold Path correctly, you are to, I think it's what right view or right thinking. And this involves sort of an understanding that all of our actions have consequences. And so, you know, I think there's room there for us to consider how our actions as humans have consequences on the more than human world. There's a point you explore within that text that I think is related to this, which is also the boundaries of selfhood. You're exploring this idea that the sense of selfhood extends not just beyond ourselves, but also beyond the human world. You also bring up this concept of solidarity. We often talk about compassion in Buddhism. And I think compassion is one of those terms which ends up kind of losing its value often because it's a kind of truism for Buddhists, or it becomes mm -hmm. a kind of trite notion that we often don't interrogate and question. In a sense, I think you could argue that compassion could also be understood as solidarity. And also, as you describe mm -hmm. it within that text, the actual uh, explorative capacity to go beyond the experiential sense of the boundaries of you. This is kind of something you're, you get into in the text, and it's something we've been kind of coming towards in our conversation for, yeah. so far. Does that play out in your own practice, this own meditative practice or walking practice or contemplative practice that you have? Yes, absolutely. And just to clarify, that word solidarity comes from Timothy Morton's humankind, um, humankind, solidarity with non-human people, I think is the full title of the book. So that, that notion of solidarity with um, beings that are, are not human necessarily, um, whether it's your, as, as Timothy Morton describes, your, your gut flora, or whether it's creatures that you will never see in your life. And of course, we will never actually see our gut flora either because they're too small for us to see. But um, I think in terms of my own practice, absolutely, that uh, I see what you mean about this, this notion of compassion kind of becoming a bit trite and maybe empty in some respects, just because it's overused or it's misunderstood or it's sort of bandied about as like a cure-all for, say, um, the polarizations and thinking that seem to exist right now in North America mm. with respect to politics. Um, you know, have compassion for everyone and all our problems will be solved. And maybe there's some truth to that, but I think um, perhaps solidarity is, it frames things differently and perhaps in a very useful way that we kind of have to recognize that as living beings, we're all here together. And how are we going to make the best of that <laughs> for all of us, not just humans, um, but for, for other beings as well on which we depend, whether we realize it or not. And so for me, this process of going out walking every day is a reminder that I am in relationships of solidarity or reciprocity, if you want to use it a term that comes up in a lot of indigenous philosophies, including Robin Wall Kimmerer's book, Braiding Sweetgrass, 
you know, we have to, I think, maybe quiet our egos a little bit as humans and recognize that there's a lot more out there, that we're not the sort of be-all, end-all of, of life forms. And being out in the more than human world is, is one of the best ways to remind yourself of that, I think. Mm-hmm. And certainly it's, it's been for me. Yeah. And are there additional practices that you engage in that kind of go beyond just paying attention and walking in nature? Yes, that's sort of the first step, I guess you could say, in in the full practice, if you want to call it that. Um, the next phase of it, I guess, would be picking things up and actually engaging with them physically, materially, and in some cases, bringing those things that I find, whether it's a shell or a stone or a plant, just a piece of a plant, back home where I have often started drawing them, which is another opportunity, I think, for you to let go of your ego, to to sort of forget about your your own little woes and, and focus on something outside of yourself that is rewarding in and of itself. You know, just even looking at the objects as I draw them, never mind the finished product of the drawing, is immensely satisfying. It makes me, what's the term? I think some people call it flow, where you sort of lose a sense of of time and you're, you're simply in the moment. Yeah. And, yeah, that's the word. Yeah, so that's that's one thing that I love about the process of drawing is just getting into that space and and you almost... I mean, maybe this sounds a little bit trite or cheesy or something, but you almost become one with the object that you're drawing, mm-hmm. but at the same time, fully aware that you you are a human separate from it, and and you're creating a, an interpretation in the representation that you're making. There's another idea that you, you bring up in that text, which I think relates to what you're saying now, which is meditation as action, and also existence as being in relation. If I'm not mistaken, this idea of existence as being in relation was taken from Timothy Morton's work too. Is that right? Or is this a concept that you've developed? Um, being in relation, I think, comes up in a lot of different sources that I've been reading. Maybe Timothy Morton as well, though it's been a couple of, of um, years since I read that book, but it certainly keeps coming up in a lot of the uh, writings and, and philosophies of indigenous thinkers and writers. Um, one I've just mentioned is Robin Wall Kimmerer. Um, she's always talking about living in relation, in, in relationships of reciprocity with humans and the more than human world. Um, it's, I think maybe the particular quote you're thinking of came from um, Margaret Kovach, who is a, I think, Cree and Salto uh, academic who currently lives in what is now Saskatchewan. And yeah, this notion that you are always in relationship with someone or something or another being, um, I think, is perhaps, for me anyway, integral to the practices that I engage in, whether it's walking or drawing. And and it's useful in, in other contexts as well, like teaching, <laughs> you know, to to always be thinking about what kind of relationship you have with your students, for example, and how that's unfolding over the term and and how you can be of most help to them, right, without hopefully sacrificing your own needs for self-care. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there is that 
tendency, I think, or there has been at least, and maybe things are changing now to to romanticize this this kind of idea too of interdependence, which is just mm. you know another word for all of it. I think as practitioners we uh, can struggle sometimes, and and you'll tell me if you have experience of this with the the overbearing nature of being in relationship. Right? There's mm. there's a certain human desire to retreat from the world at times, not just in a contemplative sense, but in a a kind of desire to to feel yourself apart from the world and not not so contaminated or oppressed by it. Mm. And I think that's that's an interesting concept that can be explored that say in ways that may be um less problematic in the non human world, which you've been mentioning quite a bit so far. Um have you found that you're able to in a sense use that being in relation to the human and the non human world as a kind of practice in itself where you can distinguish between the two and learn about how it is that you exist and you live in relationship or don't live in relationship? Have you found that kind of uh, dichotomy or that distinction between human and non-human as a field of practice in a way that's been helpful or useful? Uh, yeah, I think if I'm understanding you correctly, I can give a good example of maybe a kind of a epiphany-like moment that I had back in the spring hmm. that relates to this. Um, so, yeah, back in this would probably be about April. So we were in the midst of lockdown and the pandemic was raging in its first wave and so on and so forth. And I, w- I had been spending a lot more time online than I usually do or like to. So I'm just not really that into social media. Um, one of the reasons that I was online more was because at that point, my university had switched to so-called remote delivery of the rest of the content for the term. Mm. So I was answering a lot more student emails at that point. Um, another thing had to do with my participating in administering, being an administrator for uh, a sort of mutual aid type group on Facebook. And so the number of requests in the first month or so of that group's existence were, um, I don't even know how many there might have been in a given day, like as many as 50 to 100 posts in a day um, where people would be asking for things or wanting information or posting misinformation that had to be sort of moderated and, and so on. And so I felt an immense need to distance myself from that sort of human world and get outside. And I went on longer walks and just felt so much relief in being able to find that sort of, I guess, relationship with the non-human or the more than human world that I was incredibly grateful to be able to be outside in a, an environment that I found just demanded nothing of me. I just had to be there. It was welcoming. It was peaceful. It wasn't judging me. It wasn't asking anything of me other than to just be there. And, you know, <laughs> so I don't know if that makes any sense at all, or if that's exactly what you were looking for in terms of an answer. But um, Yeah, no, that was, that was great. And it's clear. And I think it's, it's quite a simple thing, but it's uh, profoundly important. Mm. And I, I salute your resistance to social media. And I understand <laughs> the difficulties of teaching online because I've, I've been doing it myself. And, uh, yeah, it was interesting. Um, I've uh, been involved with the kind of shamanic world. I call it that for now, on and okay. off since I was very, very young. Um, and we've had a lot of um, native teachers from various locations around the globe pass through this area, and I've done lots of ceremonies with them. But I mm. remember one, um, one, one, one sort of 
message that, that lives on really in my imagination after doing that kind of thing for quite a long time, which was this idea that, you know, there are different worlds, right? We inhabit a planet, obviously, mm. and there are different worlds on this planet and the f- different distinctions that you can make in order to divide them up and make sense of them. One being, you know, the, the human and the other than human world. But another one is seeing the worlds as divided between like the plant world, the animal world, the human world, the ancestor world. There was one chap uh, who was an Apache who came over from the States. He was quite an interesting character. But he used to say, you know, one of, one of the good things about the non-human worlds is, is precisely the point you were making. They don't, they don't ask anything from you and they give unconditionally. Mm. And not only do they do that, because all of these worlds are teachers, they always give you a clean and a clear reflection of who you are and where you are, whereas humans are often quite bad at doing that kind of thing. And, um, you know, I took that on board. I found that a really interesting way of thinking about the natural environment because, you know, it takes on a new life as soon as you say that, right? It becomes not just this beautiful thing that you can appreciate and take time out in, but it becomes a teacher. That's that's one thing. And it becomes a mirror. Additionally, it becomes the idea, at least in, in his worldview, of being a clear teacher and a clean mirror. I think that resonates to some degree with what you were saying. Would you agree with that? Yes, I think so. Certainly, I have learned a lot just from these observations from walking. Um, I think, I'm not sure how to put this exactly, but you know, one of the things that has taught me, and maybe again, this sort of will tie in with certain lines of, of thinking in Buddhism, but to go back to that point that um, I was making about the erosion of the cliffs, for example, I think that is one of the key things that made me realize how pressing the climate crisis might be. And that if I hadn't been out observing that firsthand, witnessing these changes firsthand, I might have been less inclined to believe it or to take action. And I think maybe that's part of the problem with <laughs> the, or the issue that underlies a lot of people's skepticism about climate, the climate crisis is that they're not witnessing it firsthand. And so they don't think it exists. Um, and so, okay, to sort of address the Buddhist side of it, I guess it's, immensely upsetting to, to to witness this, to see the, the cliffs erode possibly as much as a foot with every rainfall. Um, you know, maybe it, it evokes feelings of solastalgia. I don't know if you've heard that term before. It's a term coined by um, an Australian philosopher named Glenn Albrecht. And it's meant to kind of capture the feelings that a person has when, when witnessing changes in the environment, um, often anthropogenic uh, negative changes in one way, shape, or form. And so I've definitely had those kinds of feelings when out walking and seeing, you know, not only the erosion, but also the amount of plastic trash that washes up on the shore and and just getting the sense that we're, we are causing harm to the environment. On the other hand, though, to think sort of more along the lines of Buddhist um, type thinking, I guess. I don't know how to phrase it. But um, to have that sort of non-attachment type of thinking, I guess, is what I'm trying to get at, where you look at these changes 
and you're not you're accepting the feelings that you have in association with seeing this happen but you're also letting them kind of pass understanding you know why they're arising why you're having them accepting them not judging them and also perhaps even marveling at what you're able to see because of it and what i mean by this specifically is that as the cliff erodes certain different kinds of of rock (laughs) are exposed and it's fascinating for example to see in the iron oxide soil here on on prince edward island or epigwit there's a line of green that sometimes can be seen through it um and which is just a beautiful color and so remarkable to to witness (laughs) and yet at the same time you have this oh the horrors of erosion you know so but it's a good test i think in witnessing feelings and and dealing with them i guess and maybe i'm going off completely off topic again but um, no 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 not at all and it's interesting what you're describing because when you first started talking about this i thought you were going to go down the road of talking about despair (laughs) and Mm. depression and you know the feelings of overwhelm that can come about just through exposing yourself in a sense right emotionally and perceptually just to the reality of of the change that we're seeing all around us it's heartening to hear instead you you take this next step right uh and make Mm -hmm. a choice about how you're going to relate to that in a way that allows you to to remain curious in a sense uh, to remain engaged without being destroyed by that kind of experience through emotional overwhelm and i think having grown up in quite an alternative environment and having friends over the years older friends who were involved in the early environmental movement and um, mm. the stories they told, just the the number of them that burnt out over the years because they didn't have the internal resources in a sense or the community resources to know mm. how to manage that weight, you know, that emotional burden mm. that can come about um, meant that a lot of them gave up in the end, which was, which was perfectly understandable. Um, yeah. So to hear you to hear you make that shift, I think is fascinating from from two perspectives. One that I've just described, but the other one, which I think is another aspect of of the practicing life in a way that's downplayed or or underappreciated, is is how to remain curious mm-hmm. and how to engage perceptually with the things we don't want to see, mm-hmm. and that can be yeah. I keep coming back to that word to repeat myself, but overwhelming. You know, mm-hmm. there's a sense. There's a sense in which practice gives you the opportunity to be more intimate with the world, which I think is something that many of us have long desired and continue to desire. But there's obviously a price you have to pay in building that kind of that kind of relationship, right? Absolutely, yeah. It's a it's a very fine line, and it wasn't it wasn't easy. It's not like it happened overnight by any means. Um, I don't want to downplay those feelings of of being overwhelmed or in despair that you describe your friends having had. I've had <laughs> those moments myself um, of thinking like, oh, so what? Do we have a hundred years before the whole island sinks into the sea? You know, what have we got here? And and I was quite depressed actually at first uh, between witnessing the erosion and also attending a workshop at UPEI's climate change lab, um, which gave me some of the scientific knowledge to accept that that these things were happening um, on the scale that they're happening. And that, yeah, it it was very upsetting. But I guess, again, yeah, what are you going to do, though, with those feelings? Are you going to dwell in them, ruminate, 
come to a complete standstill? Or are you going to make that choice to shift your thinking, whether it's to curiosity or to some kind of action that will help hopefully mitigate the problems that we're experiencing, whether it's due to the pandemic or climate crisis or, or other things, right? I guess the, one of the points that I, I think I have found useful about my practice is just allowing me to, to do that, you know, to address emotions and come to terms with them and sort of move on for them from them rather and I'm not sure, it, it's probably apocrypha, Buddhist apocrypha, <laughs> these little memes that come up every now and then, something the Dalai Lama said, you know, you can um, open the door to your feelings, but don't invite them in for tea, right? So the idea being that you acknowledge, address, but don't allow them to sort of linger. Yeah, that's an interesting world of exploration right there, which I'm, I'm going to avoid going down right now, but... Uh... <laughs> This is my Sam Harris interruption, or as he once used to call it, housekeeping, which I quite like, really. Housekeeping. I don't think I've ever engaged in housekeeping. It sounds like the kind of thing upper-middle-class people used to do in the Victorian age. But anyway, that's besides the point, isn't it? This interruption serves to remind you of two things, and I'll keep it brief. Number one, this podcast now has a donation option on its website, imperfectbuddha.com, and I'm not going to manipulate you like Sam might. I'm just going to say a couple of straightforward things. Think about it. How much do you listen to this podcast? Really, how much have you got out of it? If the answer is very little, then skip ahead. But if you're a regular listener who benefits from these kinds of interviews I hold and these kind of creative turns that I've been experimenting with, then you might want to give something back. And here's my thoughts on it. If you don't give something back to me, give something back to someone else perhaps to your favourite podcast. The other one, of course. Huh? Anyway, I think it's right that you do so. I do so myself. And it needs to happen really in this day and age. I know how much time and energy I put into all this. So, some of my favourite podcasts, well, they're doing exactly the same thing. And apart from those on the BBC or that belong to other professional organisations, the lesser ones, like this one, are usually put together by hard-working, inspired individuals trying to share quality content. So, give something back today, folks. Give something back. Secondly, well, as you should know by now, this podcast is sponsored by O'Connell Coaching. That's my coaching business. And if you don't know the spiel, I'll quickly give it to you in one minute max. I offer coaching, support, mentoring and guidance to those taking well, a different kind of approach to spirituality and Buddhism. Waking up, coming to know your mind, dealing with your emotions, etc., etc. Any of the themes we've tackled on the podcast can be faced in a one-to-one coaching dynamic. Many people find it useful. I've been refining and tailoring my approach over the last few years. I'm finding it more rewarding too, and it seems that other folks are too. Three options, coaching, Buddhist-style practice and engagement, and the shamanic stuff that, well, a lot of people seem to be rather curious about, to the point that I might actually have a podcast episode on that topic soon, but shan't give away my secrets right now. The kind of information for O'Connell Coaching is now being placed all together at the same website, imperfectbuddha.com. Get in touch if you feel the need. 
I mean, one of the themes we've we've explored in this podcast is is just the the problematic nature that um, meditation can often give rise to in terms of emotions, which sounds like a paradox until you realize, you know, there is a long history of people using spirituality more broadly as a kind of negation mm-hmm. of their humanity. And what I'm hearing, you know, what you you shared before is is not just an attempt to kind of manage emotions, right? To keep them at bay, to objectify them, or to to allow yourself to cope in to a like- sense, right, as a, co- a survival or coping mechanism, but instead as as a means for almost enriching your capacity to actually see clearly what's going on around you. And I think that in itself mm-hmm. is is actually not something that necessarily always comes naturally to people. I think it requires a certain kind of of courage um, to actually see that kind of practice through. I don't want to necessarily agree with you there because that sounds like i'm saying yes i'm courageous but i maybe i would phrase it as effort that it takes effort um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that maybe i'll own that yes i do i i like okay. to see myself as the kind of person who makes effort to do things whatever yeah. they are um and i think maybe that's something that people can't take on sometimes or they find it difficult to make whatever kind of effort to yeah, to acknowledge feelings or or whatever. Yeah. We've got about 10, 15 minutes left. Can I finish up with a few more practice-focused questions? Sure. You've talked about practice. We've used the word practice. You know, you've kind of throughout mentioned a certain kind of relationship with Buddhism. What is it you actually do? Are you a regular meditator? Do you do body practices? How would you describe your, your practice beyond spending time in nature and walking and so forth? I don't officially, you know, I don't sit zazen or, or any of those sort of um, official kinds of, of meditating. Um, I've tried different workshops over the years. You know, one was at the Shambhala Center in Halifax. Um, one was sort of a lunch and learn type thing that lasted eight weeks at a place I used to work. Um, I guess... One thing that oh and headspace I've tried headspace um, which didn't work for me very well I think it was fine for my friend but I couldn't quite get there um, so I don't know if maybe I just have some kind of this is where my <laughs> blind spot or my resistance comes up is I, I I find it difficult to sit and and just focus on my breath um, and maybe this goes back to the previous question about having too much time to think about your emotions you know or boredom or something. Um, <laughs> um, so maybe that's my thing. I need to address that and, and figure out why I have resistance to sitting meditation. So I, I don't really do that. I hmm. Walking and drawing and even just sort of lying and not lying on my bed or lying on the floor or on my yoga mat or whatever um, would be about as meditative as I get. Or occasionally guided meditations that sort of allow the, you know, your body to relax going through each part of your body sort of in a systematic way that sometimes yoga instructors do. Walking and art in themselves are, of course, practices with very, 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 very long histories. Um, so I think I can still ask you some of these questions. If we think about your, your life of art and your life of walking, you've already spoken to this to some degree, but uh, what are some of the the big lessons you've learned from these two practices beyond those you've spoken to? I have come to gain a deeper knowledge of of the area that I live in. Um, I've become more curious about it, 
not simply just about the life forms that are here now, but also about the history of it. In particular, you know, maybe the natural history and how that's changed since the first settlers arrived here in the 1700s. Um, also what that sort of relationship the settlers had themselves with the land and with the indigenous people who were here. Um, so it's, you know, and then I'm taking some of this, this is, well, I'm, backtracking a little bit. What I have been doing, my responses to, to these practices are very similar to um, things that Jenny O'Dell suggests people do in her book, How to Do Nothing. Just a sort of a little side note there. Um, if you want to think more about these particular things, this, you know, observing your environment, walking or being in your environment and art practices, then that would be a good book for someone to pick up and read. Um, what else have I learned about it? I think I've learned to quiet my ego a lot more. Um, I didn't realize maybe when I started my PhD how much of my ego was invested in doing that. And I've come to see <laughs> maybe that um, ego is not the best uh, motivator for your for your life for many reasons. Um, <laughs> I've come to have a greater acceptance of impermanence, the constantly changing landscape, uh, the constantly changing body in relation to the landscape in drawing you're recognizing how the drawing itself constantly changes even if the object in, in front of your eyes doesn't it's, again you mentioned the word ego a few times but uh, now more so than before when you talk about the ego what is it you're actually referring to in your own experience right yeah i'm not even sure i can quite answer that exactly i think there's maybe different ways of understanding what ego is but for me, I guess the sense of the self as the most important thing, and I think we're sort of indoctrinated in that a lot of the time in Western culture, this notion that we have to be an individual above all else. And I guess I've come to understand that that's an erroneous way of thinking. We're not an individual above all else. We are always in relation with other beings. It's interesting. Our conversation's taken various uh, twists and turns, but uh, I'm going to ask this anyway, even if you feel like you've answered it to some degree. Is there a lesson now that you wish you had learned sooner in life? Mm, wow. Um, <laughs> uh, well, that very thing, I guess, that all life forms are are fundamentally, whether we realize it or not, deeply in relation to each other. So that's definitely one thing. Despite what I've just said about ego, I think I also wish that I had learned to have more grounded confidence in myself earlier. Mm. Um, not in the sense of me, the individual, but as someone who has certain abilities that can be used to make good things happen, whether <laughs> not just for yourself, but for others. And I guess that has to do with teaching, but also drawing, you know, I think I held myself back a long time from, from doing art because I had been, I don't know, convinced one way or another that I wasn't good enough. And I think that is actually a bad thing for our poor little egos to think that you're not good enough. Just, you know, don't overthink it. Just do something that you enjoy, I guess. You've picked up on a, a fascinating paradox there, which it's something we're still contending with, I think, which is yes. individual, non-individual self, no self, right? Being, right. being non-being and all the rest of it. And I think that's an interesting topic to discuss another day. But uh, 
It sounds like you've made some some good steps in your practice, Jane. So, you know, good for you. And I, I hope that if you continue to explore the theme of the environment, raising awareness of it and offering up intelligent thought on how to approach that, I think that's a very, very good thing you're doing. And, um, you know, I'll finish up by just asking, do you do you have plans to explore more of that kind of work? Is there something you're you're either working on or, or looking to work on at some point? Yeah, I, I guess it's sort of become a constant thread in both my writing and my art. Um, some of the things that we've talked about today actually are threads in a forthcoming article for a journal called Feral Feminisms. And I'm not sure exactly when it's going to be published, but it, it does seem like a sort of, I don't like to use the word natural necessarily, but an extension of some of the things that were in that side view essay. And I do have ideas for another series of drawings that I'm, I've started working on, which have to do with um, this concept in art called trompe l'oeil, which means fooling the eye or deceiving the eye. And it's um, a tradition that sort of arose when realism really started to take off in European art making and, um, you know, portraits or still lives were done as representationally or realistically as possible in order to fool the eye, to deceive the the viewer into thinking that what they were looking at was was real as opposed to a painted image. Um, and so the series of drawings I'm looking at uh, that I started is sort of playing with that idea, but taking it to a slightly different place, I guess. Um, so in my wanderings along the shore, I look for different things such as shells or pieces of um, so-called sea glass or beach glass and pottery. There's a lot of pottery here from early settlement that washes up on the shore a lot. And sometimes I mistake one of those things for the other. And so it's become this sort of interesting exercise for me to, you know, what am I looking at here actually? And, and isn't it interesting that these things kind of resemble each other? And so I'm just sort of playing with those ideas in the next series of drawings. Interesting. Yeah, very nice. And where can listeners... Uh, see that when it comes to life uh those drawings well hopefully there will be another exhibition happening somewhere um but i will probably also post some pictures on my website which is uh www.jane hyphen i think it is affleck.com Okay, great. Well, look, Jane, thanks for giving up some of your time today in this festive period. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Yes, thank you so much. I've enjoyed it as well. Great. And uh, I look forward to seeing more of your art and and reading more of your work and uh, recommend again that readers go to the side view and read that text, which um, uh, can you name that article? It's got a rather complex name. Oh, my gosh. What is it called? It's um, Meditative Awareness and the Symbiotic Real. They probably turn off some people, but I find those kinds of terms, you know, really enticing. I guess the symbiotic or the symbolic real. I mean, what the hell? That doesn't make you curious. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. All the best and uh, take care and bye for now. You too. Thank you. Cuckoo, as they say in Italy. Or, hey there, if you're American and you're right, mate, if you're from the UK. Look, really, how many of these episodes have you listened to? How much have you got out of these conversations? And all that hard work we put into them. If you've gained value from the podcast, go ahead and make a donation. Give something back. 
call it dana if it makes it more palatable, you know it's the right thing to do. We get so much from the internet for free that we too often forget the hardworking men and women are giving up their time, energy and effort to make it for you. None of it is free. And that includes this podcast. Visit imperfectbuddha.com, scroll down on the right for the donation button and do your part. Thank you.